Our scripture today is from Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Please stand if you are able. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is God's word. You may be seated. And we're going to begin in verse 13. Now, in life, we often have two choices. Some seem very insignificant. A chocolate or vanilla, a frappuccino or a latte, a Fenway Park or the Wang Center, or Chipotle or Five Guys. The decisions don't seem to matter that much. There are other decisions that seem to set us in a course of life itself. What career path am I going to follow? Which person should I marry? What city are we going to live in? But there is no decision that is more critical than the one Jesus talks about in this passage. For it will not only determine how you live today and tomorrow, but it determines your very eternity. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you might open up our hearts. It's easy to close down, feeling uh, these are, are hard words, or to some they're easy words, been there, done that. But I believe, God, you have a message from your word for each one of us today. If we close our hearts, that message is not going to come through. But Lord, if we open our hearts, you say that your word will not return void. I ask to begin with me to open my hearts afresh and anew to this passage. And the same for each one of us here. Amen. As we read this passage, you may have different feelings about it already. Some of you might say, wow, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been exploring Christianity, and this seems to be a very decisive in regards to what the road of Christianity is and and what it is not, so I'm really waiting to hear this sermon. Others of you might say, there's a few confusing things here that don't quite fit what I was thinking about the Christian life, and you're welcoming the sermon. Then there are those of you who might not be so comfortable with Christianity and say, ah, this is just going to confirm what I've always felt. Christians are very, very narrow, and here it is, Jesus is, is saying that. And then there are many of us here who say, well, I'm a Christian. So, you know, 
I'll go on autopilot today. Well, this message is for each one of us where we are, especially for the person who thinks they are Christians. Uh, New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias says that this sermon is really written to new believers. It's kind of like a new believers class because he's saying the things Jesus is asking of here cannot really be followed out by anyone who has not been gripped, fully gripped by Jesus Christ in the gospel. So if that is the case, that this sermon is really first and foremost written to people who are new Christians who believe they're Christians, then Jesus at the end of the sermon is saying, are you really on the right path? You may think you are, you may be confident you are a Christian, but you need to examine yourself. There are two gates, the wide gate. And most people are in the wide gate and they think, They've arrived. And then there's the narrow gate that very few have entered by. So as we let God speak to us through this this morning, I really want to look at three things. One, what are these two roads and destinies? Two, who is on the wide road? And thirdly, who is on the narrow road? So the two roads, Jesus says there's the wide one, the wide gate, the narrow gate. The wide gate leads to a wide road. The narrow gate leads to a narrow road. And as soon as you hear that, most people think, oh, the wide road is the way of the world, of irreligious people who don't really care about God, and they basically live life the way they want to live it. They create their own morality and they pursue life how they want to pursue it. And the narrow road is the religious people. Those people who believe in God and and live very moral lives and do the things God wants them to, to do. And that is not the case at all. Yes, it's clear that irreligious people who don't care about God are on the wide path. But also religious people are on the wide path as well. In this sermon, there is nothing in this sermon that addresses irreligious people. Everybody that this sermon addresses, it talks about, it says, they they both cite the word of God, they quote the word of God, and they try to live by that word. Both groups pray, both groups give generously, both groups fast, And so Jesus is speaking to this group and he says there are very many religious people who are on the wide path even though they think they're on the narrow path. Now this does not resonate with our culture today. One of the things that bothers people who aren't Christian is that Christians seem so narrow. And that every religion should be a way to God. It's just like every religion is climbing the same mountain. We're just coming on different sides of the mountain. And when we finally reach the top, we'll we'll all be there with God. These are the words of Jesus Christ. And he says, that is not the case. There are many, many religious people that he has talked about in this sermon who are entered by the wide gate. 
in uh, a year after I became a Christian, I was a member of the Vista Volunteers. That's AmeriCorps of the old days. And as I neared the end of my tenure, I had an opportunity to go to uh, five weeks of Bible study with crew. But I'd have to leave Vista a month early. So I decided to sit down with my supervisor and inform her that I was going to be leaving. Now, I knew she would be disappointed because she was about to approach me to ask me to re-up for another year. Now, she was not one who uh, was really thrilled with Christianity. So I felt when I gave her the reason for why I was leaving, she would have a hard time understanding it. So what I tried to do was put myself in her shoes. What might be her thinking? What might be her objections and her questions? And so when I told her, I said, well, I'm going to go to this Bible study. Essentially, I know you want Vista to be first in my life. And it's high priority in my life. But Jesus Christ is first in my life. And I need to follow him. And she said, oh, okay, I understand that. And then I said, now, when we Christians say that Jesus is the only way, that must sound narrow to you. And she said, yep. So I asked, why did Jesus say he's the only way? See, we Christians didn't make this up. It's Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. So if I was Jesus, I wouldn't do it that way. But Jesus is the one who said it. Do you know why Jesus said he's the only way? And she said, no, no, I don't understand that at all. I said, because sin separates us from a holy God. And Jesus is the only religious leader who said, I come to die for your sin, to take it out of the way so you can have a relationship with God. Every other religion is really moral teaching and religious philosophy. Christianity is not that. It is a person who has come to be our savior and die for our sin. And that is why Jesus Christ says it's a narrow path. You only come through him. But you see also in this passage, there are, there's the gate that gets you on a path. And then you live out on that road. And those roads lead to destinies. They have destinies. And the one road, the narrow gate, leads to life. And so what does he mean by life? Jesus said, I came that you might have life, and you might have it to the fullest. Now stop and think about that for a moment. If somebody came up to you and said, I came to give you life, I think my reaction would be, uh, what do you mean give me life? My mother gave me life. I mean, look at me. Pinch me. I feel. Cut me. I bleed. I'm breathing. What do you mean you came to give me life? And that's because Jesus understands life not as breathing and existing. He understands life as a living, vital relationship with God himself. And you can only have the fullest life when you have experienced that, when you are experiencing that relationship with Christ. And so the one path that gives not only life eternal where we live with God forever, It gives us life, offers us life abundant and full right now. Now, the other way, he says, it leads to destruction. 
And we think immediately of, well, we're talking about final judgment, where we're condemned to be apart from God for eternity. But it's also talking about what the dynamic that happens in lives that are disconnected from God. They really begin to deconstruct in many ways. Our lives dissipate when we are apart from God. And the very classic example of that is in The Lord of the Rings. If you've read the books or you've seen the movie, uh, you see this character Smeagol. And Smeagol, finally, he, he, he and his friend find the ring, uh, this ring, and he is so captured by the ring, he kills his friend, and this ring is his precious. This is his life. This gives him meaning. This is what, in his mind, fulfills him and is going to make him the happiest person. Instead, what it does is he invests everything to try to keep that ring. And his character and his even physical appearance begin to degenerate until he ends up as this hideous creature Golem, who is not only hideous in his form, but more hideous in his character. And you see how he goes back and forth as he presents this Smeagol nice guy character, but then he turns when his real self comes out. And Jesus is saying that each one of us, apart from God, has that that path of destruction. Now, not all of us go get deconstructed to that extent. But every one of us is not the person God made us to be. Every one of us is twisted in some way in our choices, in our feelings, and in our character because we're on a path of destruction. So those are the two ways, and I ask first, which gate have you, are you entering by? Which road are you on? And I'm sure many of you are confident, I am on the, the narrow road. And Jesus says, to be very, very careful to assume that. And so he talks to two groups, false prophets and false disciples, to warn us not to fall into the self-deception of these two groups. Now, everybody who was religious probably says, I'm on the wide path and I'm fine. So that's why Jesus zeroes in on people who are religious, prophets. And so he says, watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So who are these false prophets? It's hard to determine precisely. But it seems to be religious people, probably the type that Jesus has been talking about in the sermon. Remember we said right at the beginning of the sermon, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, they quote scripture. They say, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Keep your vows. They pray. They stand on street corners praying to God. They give generously in the treasury box. They fast. And it's very hard to tell the difference. You look at those people and you say, what's the difference between them and and Christians? In fact, the people 
look at those religious leaders and say, wow, I want to be like them. Look at, they're doing everything right. So how do you determine when they look the same on the outside, and yet Jesus says, you're going to know them by their fruit. So what is the fruit of these religious people who are following the letter of the law? And they are prophets, so they are teaching others. Their fruit is arrogance and self-righteousness. They blow trumpets before they give, so everyone will look at them and look up to them. They stand on the street corners and pray, so everyone will be impressed with them. They stand in judgment on others and say, Thank you, God, that you didn't make me like them, that I'm not like them. Instead, I fast twice a week, and I tithe everything I get. The fruit is self-righteousness, which is antithetical to the Christian Christ-like quality of humility. They are oppressive. They scrutinize everyone's life to see if they're living by the letter of the law, and they miss the spirit of the law that truly brings life. And Jesus says about them, you go over land and sea to find one disciple, to make one disciple, and you make him twice the disciple of hell that you are. The lives of their disciples are lives that are constrained by the letter of the law that produces self-righteous people. The fruit is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the fruit of the way of life. And so you can tell the false from the true by the fruit, by the grace, the humility, the love that is in their lives. The second group that we need to be careful that we are not a part of is the false disciples. And listen to Jesus' description of them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. So here are people that call Jesus Lord. Clearly, we see them as Christians. And it's very probable they are talking not just that, Jesus, you're our master. But in those days, it was very common, people were to say, Caesar is Lord. Meaning Caesar is divine. Christians wouldn't do that. And so you have people who are saying, Jesus, Lord, Lord. They've got the right theology about Jesus. Their theology is perfectly orthodox. They stand up for Jesus when you could be persecuted for Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. They are fervent and passionate. They don't just say, Lord, Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. And then look at their actions. They cast out demons. They, they're casting out demons. They're uh, 
prophesying. They're performing miracles. If you had somebody come into this church who had the right theology, who had a passion for Jesus, was calling us all to Jesus, and could do all the acts, our response would be, let's make him associate pastor. That guy up in the pulpit, he, he isn't that good. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. What's wrong here? This guy, these people are on the wide road. Why? Look at what they say. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do miracles? What is the basis for their relationship with God? It's their actions. It might be their obedience, their miracles, the powers. They are trusting in their works. Even if they got their theology right, they are trusting in their works rather than the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul was a perfect picture of this kind of person before he got struck down while he's on this road to Damascus. We see this in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul says this, If anyone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law of faultless. And Paul is saying this is, there was a time, just like you now, where if there was anyone who could come before God and say, look at what I have done in the flesh. God, you deserve me. I'm that person. And then he delineates from the eighth day he was following the law. He was of the right people. He was passionate about the right religion. He was the, lived out the strictest, most moral life. He had the greatest zeal. He invested his entire life in the right religion. And he said, as to the law, he kept it perfectly. And later Paul says, that's all rubbish. There was a time... He trusted in his works. You see, the common denominator between everyone who is on the the Broadway, the wide road, whether you're irreligious or very religious, you're on the wide road because you are your own savior. Irreligious people, you're trying to save your own life. You're trying to find meaning. You're trying to find purpose. You're trying to find fulfillment apart from God. You're trying to find it in your looks or in your power, your athletic prowess, your intelligence, uh, the people you, you associate with, the people who are impressed with you. You're your own savior. And it's the same from so many religious people. Every religion apart from Christianity and many people within Christendom who call themselves Christians really are like Paul, where they're putting confidence in their moral lives or their religious lives. You may even know the gospel. You may even be able to tell people the gospel. But it comes down to what are you trusting? 
in your relationship with God? A question that I like to ask that was taught me many years ago when I sit down with somebody to try to explore where you are, what path you're on, is if you were to die today and you faced God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Okay, ponder that. I'm asking you right now. Don't, don't answer back, but in your hearts. If God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The answer I get back most often is, well, I think God will accept me because I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm better than most people. I try to live a moral life, and I'm very, I'm very sincere. And, and uh, some, sometimes I read my Bible, and I go to church on Easter and, and Christmas. Some people might say, I go to church every, every week. I read my Bible every day. But that answer is what? I, I, I. Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Lord, did I not cast out demons? Lord, did I not do miracles? If you are trusting in yourself, your works, you're on the wide, you entered by the wide gate. So who is it that enters by the narrow gate? I think it's the first words of this whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, First, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. That beatitude is the basis for the entire sermon. That is the way you enter by the narrow gate, to be poor in spirit. And what is poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is someone who says, God, here's my work, they're rubbish. I can't get in based on what I've done. My righteousness can't earn me a relationship with you. The poor in spirit is the person like Isaiah, who when he gets a vision of God and he sees the holiness of God, his response is, woe is me, I am ruined. So here is a prophet of Israel, and he says, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Elsewhere, he says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You see, Isaiah gets it. He is poor in spirit. I am not worthy to be in your presence, and there is nothing I can do to earn my way to you. And what happens in that picture is, An angel goes to the altar where the sacrifices take place, touches Isaiah right where he is a sinner, and he is pronounced forgiven. That altar represents Jesus Christ. The poor in spirit say, I can't save myself, so I need a Savior, God. I need you to be my Savior. Jesus tells a parable in... uh, in Luke 18, that captures this perfectly. The Pharisee goes up and says, God, thank you that I'm not like uh, robbers and adulterers or like this tax collector here, but look at what I do. I pray twice. I fast twice a week. I give everything. He could go on and on. What he's doing is he's trusting in himself. I, I, I. But the tax collector goes up 
And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's poor in spirit. What he's saying is, God, I have nothing in my hands to bring you. Because not only have I sinned, but I am a sinner. Everything I do comes out of a person who is a sinner. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. So he says, God, be merciful to me. What he's doing is he's depending upon God to somehow take care of his sin because he can't do it. He's depending upon God to be a savior. And we know that took place when Jesus Christ came for us and went to the cross and took our sins upon him. The one who enters by the narrow gate is the one who trusts Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to have a relationship with God and not himself. The one who has entered by the narrow gate is asked the question, if you were to face God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? That person would not only say, but will truly, truly believe. There is nothing in me that makes me worthy. I can enter because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Now we've talked about a narrow gate. And there is also a narrow road. The gate is Jesus Christ, the gospel, his death on the cross and resurrection. We enter by that, and then we live on this narrow road. And what is that narrow road? It is the way of the gospel. And a lot of Christians enter by the narrow gate, and somehow they seem to jump over to the wide road. Uh, Jesus doesn't talk about that here, but we jump over to the wide road and we start living by our own works and efforts. And Jesus is saying, you enter by the narrow gate and you stay on the narrow gate. It's the way of the gospel. And the key words here are when Jesus says to the false disciples, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, notice he does not say only the ones who do the will of God. And we often look and they say, it's the ones who do the will of God. What we do is we're following God and we earn our way. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, the will of my Father. And those are very important words because they are pointing to the way you live out the Christian life. It is in a relationship with God as your Father, just like Jesus Christ's relationship with God the Father. Uh, John 15, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love If you keep my commands, you're remaining in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. You see, he's picturing the Christian life. He is picturing picturing the, the, the narrow road. It is a road of a love relationship where obedience flows because we love God. And we love God because he first loved us. The Father, Jesus said, I want you, I know the Father loves me, that's why I obey him. 
Know my, the Father's love. Know my love. And let that transcend into your life so much that you love each other. And it's a life of joy and fulfillment. That's the life God has for us. It is not we are living out the will of our Father in heaven because he's watching over us and making sure we don't get off that path. It is out of a love relationship with God so where we are so moved by the love of God which is displayed on the cross. God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that moves in our hearts to compel us to live for him, to love him and live for him. I think this is captured in a, in a, in a, in a movie uh, that was shown. Uh, and it was a movie from Vietnam called The Three Seasons. And a, uh, a reviewer writes about this movie. And what it is, it's a story about uh, two people. There is Hai, who is a rickshaw racer. And the love of his life, Lan, who is a prostitute. Both are very poor, and their dreams are totally unfulfilled. And, of course, Han's, uh, Hai's dream is, is Lan, <laughs> is the love of Lan. And Lan's dream is to kind of be able to enter into the world of the people who, who go to those beautiful hospitals, uh, beautiful hotels that her tricks bring her to. And, and that's her dream. And the, the harder she works to earn money, the more she becomes brutalized and enslaved in her prostitution, the more entrapped and entrenched she is. Well, one race, very important race, High wins it, and he wins a boatload of money. Now he has the chance to get out of poverty and begin to to live a more normal life. But instead, he decides he's going to take all the money and spend it on one thing, one night. And so he purchases the hotel room, the most expensive hotel, and he purchases Lon's services for the night. And so she comes up to the room, and of course everyone's expecting a steamy scene, and she is as well. And when Hai gets there, he says, no, this is not about sex. I just want you to enjoy this room. And here's what the reviewer says at this point. He has only purchased her a place as an actual guest in the normal world where she dreams of joining. He asked only permission to watch her fall asleep. Slowly, comfortably, she falls asleep, and by the morning he is gone, having demanded nothing of her but the chance to fulfill her desires of belonging. As a result, something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to her old way of prostitution. Having for the first time experienced someone who used his power to serve her rather than to use her, she gets a new sense of her own dignity 
She's not the same person. She is transformed by the transforming grace of selflessness. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all pursue something. We we devote our lives to it and we get entrapped by it. But there is one, one who comes not to serve himself, but to serve us. And he not only purchases the world of our dreams for us, he purchases it at the cost of his life. When we truly understand that, when we let that drop into the depths of our hearts, something will happen inside. We will be captured by the love of God. And we can't live the same way. We won't see ourselves in the same way ever again. We will fall in love with Christ. And we will bear the fruit of a life of righteousness. Our Father, we are at different places today. You have spoken to each one of us. Right now we can resist what you're saying or we can embrace it. I pray, Lord, that each one of us embrace the incredible love and grace that is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.